Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Hello and welcome to the History of Skipton podcast. My name is Ian Lockwood and I am the author of the book, The History of Skipton. If you want any more details about the book, go to the the website, historyofskipton.co.uk. Our last episode looked at the doctors who reduced Skipton's dreadful rate of child mortality. In this one, we will look at the final piece in the jigsaw for treating ill Skiptonians, the provision of a hospital. In 1897, Queen Victoria was due to celebrate 60 years on the throne and the town began to mobilise to decide how best to commemorate the occasion. The big idea which came to the fore was a cottage hospital and by this I mean a small facility where doctors could treat their patients and nurses could provide them with the care necessary for recuperation from non-contagious illness. Small operations could also be carried out. In May 1897, a circular was issued in the town in which a committee, headed by a Reverend Cook, outlined its plans to raise the money. By the end of June, £4,400 of the £5,000 needed had already been pledged. A site had been identified off Brook Street, on what is now a small housing development called Pine Close. And the owner of the land, Lord Hothfield, had agreed to sell it for £500, which was less than its valuation of £680. Better still, he agreed to give £350 straight back to the Cottage Hospital Committee and use the balance to construct a retaining wall, which can still be seen on Brook Street, for the steeply sloping site. The hospital would not just serve Skipton, but the surrounding villages, and money also came in from that source. William Illingworth, a retired Bradford wool merchant who lived at Colton in Molomdale, gave £250 on condition that nine other similar-sized accounts were subscribed. T.P. Brown, John Dewurst, the Skipton Cooperative Society, and Mrs. Smith from Fence in Lancashire, and Sir Matthew Wilson took up the challenge, and John Coulthurst of Gargrave gave two pledges. Together with Lord Hothfield's donation, that made eight. As a subscription list do not mention making up the one further donation required, it seemed as though Mr Rillingworth thought that good enough, and the money was handed over. It was not just the wealthy of the area who contributed. Workers in mills chipped in with pennies, and ordinary townsfolk contributed in some small and large, so that by the time of the Jubilee celebrations at the end of June 1897, the committee was resolved to press ahead at full speed with the project. 
the foundation stones were laid by Lady Wilson, Baron Hoffield, J.B. Dewhurst and Mr. Illingworth at a special ceremony on September 10th, 1898. The hospital was to be on two floors, with a men's and women's ward, each with six beds. These were on the ground floor, together with a two-bed private ward, kitchen, operating room and the matron's sitting room. Along the south side, overlooking the canal, was a covered balcony. And on the first floor were the matron's bedroom, three nurses' bedrooms, a servant's bedroom and a sitting room for the nurses. A small separate block housed the laundry and mortuary. So, Skipton's first hospital opened in the very last days of the 19th century, in November 1899, heralding a new era of healthcare in the town. Lady Cavendish cut the ribbon, but there were few speeches on the site. It was November 28th, after all. Instead, the gathering reconvened in the town hall, where speakers rightly praised the public-spirited determination to get this project up and running. It took just 30 months from a committee agreeing in May 1897 to actually build the hospital to its opening in November 1899. The surgeon appointed was a Dr Moynihan from Leeds. He would visit for operations and to check progress of patients, while two nurses and a matron would live on site permanently. The nurses, Riley and Chevalier, had been employed in local private practice, but have been unable to discover the matron's name. The annual running cost of the hospital was put at £400, and £60 of this would be covered by returns from an endowment raised by public funds, and a further £140 was expected to be collected from collections in churches, chapels and places of work across the district. The first annual meeting of the hospital committee, held in February 1900, reported that already three operations had taken place, which otherwise would have had to have been performed in Bradford, a Leeds. The figures for 1902 show that it dealt with 102 cases a year, 66 of them from Skipton, the rest of them from surrounding villages. But it was only just managing to meet the expenses which that year were £774, far more than first envisaged, and there was still £1,293 owing to the bank. The bulk of its income was subscriptions, and an annual £100 donation from the Hospital Gala Committee remained a vital source. However, initial enthusiasm for collections began to flag. In 1909, the hospital was running at a loss, and its governors initiated a scheme of appointing fundraisers in all the mills and larger places of work. They would take a monthly collection from the workers. By 1911, this scheme was playing a vital role in the upkeep of the hospital, but the governors were still struggling to make ends meet. Whatever the problems of day-to-day financing of the hospital, the outbreak of World War I focused minds. In May 1915, the hospital committee outlined plans to build an extension, initially for wounded troops, but later as a children's ward when hostilities ended. They appealed for £1,000 and had the money by Christmas, despite a host of other war-related charities seeking donations at the same time. 
Opened in 1916, the new extension took its first delivery of wounded men from the trenches in July of 1916, 22 arriving on stretchers. Their injuries were not so serious as to be life-threatening, but it caused a further strain on the hospital finances, although the public responded with patriotic generosity. However, just round the corner was the flu epidemic, which was to kill so many people across the world. The first intimation of the epidemic came in July 1918 in Skipton, when the Craven Herald reported that mental snuff was being widely used as a precaution. By the time the armistice arrived in November, it was taking a firm grip. All primary schools were shut in the town on November the 11th due to the flu. And Dr Atkinson warned people to avoid any public gatherings such as dances, entertainments and the cinema. Even railway carriages were potential death traps. Influenza masks supplied by the Red Cross were selling fast and appearing on the streets and the authorities approached the general election candidates of December that year, urging them not to hold traditional public meetings. Young people were particularly vulnerable to the disease, and in January 1919, the premier cinema in Skipton fell foul of a ban on persons under 14 attending. Skipton magistrates heard that P.C. Pryke had entered the cinema and found 18 children on the front rows, who he believed were under 14. His investigations proved correct, and the cinema owners were fined 10 shillings, that's 50 pence, for each case, a total of £9 in fines. The Skipton death rate in December 1918 was reported by Dr Atkinson as 36.2 per 1,000, an unusually high amount, with 24 people dying from flu. There was a respite, however, in January 1919, and all the schools were reopened, but it was only temporary. The Smith family of Devonshire Street was entirely wiped out. It lost two children in the initial wave, and in February, the remaining father, mother and daughter also died as a result of the flu. The Herald remained full of advice, its edition of 21st of February 1919 stating Whiskey is recognised as the most useful agent in warding off attacks and medical men are advising the public to drink wines, especially clarets, as a precaution. Even so, in the same week, while there had been four deaths from flu, a further ten were put down to bronchitis or pneumonia. In the German prisoner of war camp on Rakes Road, Flu spread swiftly. The Herald reported 260 cases there, but, quote, having regard to the fact that there are several hundred sufferers, the mortality has not been large. So far, there have been about 50 deaths. A request to the workhouse infirmary to treat the German prisoners was firmly rebuffed on the grounds that the elderly workhouse inhabitants had already put up with inferior facilities for two years, while the hospital was used to treat some wounded British soldiers and could not be expected to do so again. By 1924, the annual cost of running the cottage hospital had risen to more than £2,500. A key source of revenue was now the patients themselves. 
it seems that patients were expected to make a contribution, either themselves or via their friendly societies, which I talked about in an earlier episode. A cause for concern was the growing number of car accidents, and victims were being treated in the Skipton Hospital without making any financial contribution. This was, of course, in the pre-NHS days, and while there was never a question of not treating an accident victim, there was a moral expectation that he or she would meet at least some of the costs. Alas, this happened too infrequently, with the local volunteers left to pick up the bill. The hospital's annual report of 1928 spelt out the drain of funds caused by motorists. 61 patients had been treated because of a car accident, and of these, 28, almost half, were from outside the area covered by the hospital. The cost of treating these 28 outsiders was £149, but only £72 had been recovered. As well as urging all motorists to take out insurance to cover the cost of hospital treatment, the authorities launched an appeal to provide a new hospital. The pressure for a new hospital began around the mid-1920s, as overcrowding was becoming a regular problem at the cottage hospital. Other failings there were no waiting room for visitors, the nurse's bedroom was also their dining room, and there was no room for an x-ray department. Other complaints about the noise seem a bit more trivial. Children sledging down Granville Street caused a nuisance, as did boats on the canal and railway shunting at night. Tennis courts were being built for Dewhurst mill workers on the north side of the canal, right by the hospital, and these would add to the general noise. So, an appeal to raise £6,000 for a new hospital building was launched. In late 1928, the problem seemed solved, when Thomas Lum, owner of the paper business at Victoria Mill, made the astonishingly generous offer to give his house and grounds, Winfield, to the hospital committee. This large house on Keithley Road was originally the home of the Thomas Dewhurst family, and Lum had bought it at the end of World War I. The Herald of November the 30th, 1928, said, His sole idea was to do something for the old town, and Winfield, with its easy access, substantial buildings and extensive and well-laid-out grounds, would make an ideal institution which would meet the needs of the district, of which Skipton was the centre, for many years to come. It should have been a simple process. But from then on, what unfolded was a drawn-out, divisive and complicated process. There was widespread astonishment when the offer was turned down a few weeks later. The reasons for this were set out in great detail in a letter from none other than Algernon Dewhurst, whose family had sold the house to Lum, although this somehow was unremarked upon in the press. Algernon Dewhurst, in his capacity as Vice-Chairman of the Skipton Hospital Committee, said that the property was leasehold and had just 42 years left on the lease. Purchase of the property's freehold from the Castle Estate 
would cost £1,951. Added to this was the cost of converting from a private house to a hospital, which the committee's architect had put at £12,450. Although some funds could be expected from selling off the existing Granville Street Cottage Hospital property, the total cost was way above the £6,000 building appeal. The decision to rebuff Lamb's offer annoyed and astounded many. Lum himself, in a letter of reply published in the paper, told Dewhurst that I cannot help but feel that your committee has made an exceedingly grave and bad blunder. Mr Lum also enclosed a cheque for £100 towards the appeal. An unnamed doctor in the town gave the view that the £12,450 conversion costs had been grossly overstated, and another member of the hospital staff, writing anonymously, echoed that view. The Chamber of Trade, at its annual dinner, cheered a speaker who said it had been a terrible decision. So, when the hospital committee held its annual meeting for subscribers in May that year, there was bound to be criticism. Lum became involved in a polite but strong argument with committee secretary H. Dickman, who he accused of throwing dust in the eyes of the committee. Dickman was to resign his post soon after. The meeting ended with the passing of a resolution to form a subcommittee to look at the issue. The new subcommittee quickly secured a report from architects who specialised in hospital building, and they said that Winfield was the best option. But there was just one problem. Lum now wanted £2,250 for the building. Perhaps it was just peak which decided him against resurrecting his old offer of giving it away, or perhaps he needed the money. It was, after all, December 1929, days after the Wall Street crash, and the economic situation was gloomy and deteriorating. Either way, there was no criticism and indeed the asking price was considered very reasonable. But positions were becoming entrenched. The hospital committee voted again to reject the Winfield option while its subcommittee voted to proceed. It may have been Lum's agreement that he would return the £2,250 asking price for his house in seven annual instalments, which finally tipped the committee in favour of the Winfield option. That was in August 1930. Even so, there was still a considerable fallout as the chairman and vice-chairman, that was the manager of Skipton Castle, Robert Barrett, and Algernon Dewhurst, resigned their posts. The new chairman of the hospital committee was the local doctor, Norman MacLeod. We talked about him in the last episode, and he's the father of the future Chancellor of the Exchequer in Edward Heath's government. He'd been a leading supporter of the Winfield scheme, and was probably the anonymous doctor. A meeting of subscribers in September 1930 was told that the new hospital would house 66 beds. It would cost £11,000, 
and £6,700 had already been raised. A campaign was started to raise 40,000 shillings, that's £2,000, and collections set up in workplaces. There was great enthusiasm for the new hospital, and by the time a foundation stone was laid by Mrs Lum and Dr MacLeod's wife in August 1931, the total cost had already been covered, helped by a grant of £2,000 from the County Council, on condition that a maternity unit was included. The first patients were transferred there in time for the official opening of the new hospital in the summer of 1932 by the Princess Royal. This was the only daughter of the King, George V, and the aunt of our current Queen, Elizabeth II. The Craven Herald remarks that this was the first official visit by a member of the royal family to Skipton since Richard III had stayed at the castle 500 years previously. As for the old cottage hospital, its buildings were taken over by the Skipton Rural District Council, which served villages around Skipton, which, and which had been previously using offices in the workhouse. In 1967, most of the site was sold to Slater's, the Skipton High Street electrical store, for warehousing, and some were sold for building, leading to the development of Pine Close. A bigger hospital required more income, but subscribers rose to the challenge. Yet every year the pressure rose to keep pace with the challenge of providing a hospital with a town of Skipton size on voluntary contributions alone. The formation of the National Health Service in the post-war period was the hugely popular government solution and hospitals, including Skipton, were handed over to the NHS in 1948. One of the final reports of the Skipton Joint Hospital Committee shows pride in handing over a hospital which was debt-free. Remarkably, that happened. Indeed, a surplus of almost £26,000 was handed over to the NHS, £7,500 from the balances and £18,000 worth of endowments. The arrival of the NHS also brought with it an ambulance service. The voluntary St John's Ambulance Service had been set up in Skipton in 1896 and by 1930 had acquired land off Shortbank Road for a permanent headquarters. Of course, it still operates from there, maintaining its excellent service from a new, rather elegant building. However, the NHS Act gave local authorities the responsibility for transporting patients to hospital. In Skipton, the new ambulance service was based at the former children's home in Burnside. At first, it had no garage, just a wooden shed, and that burnt down in the early 1950s, prompting the construction of the current ambulance station on Broughton Road. Meanwhile, the County Council bought Burnside House to accommodate up to 22 orphans. It wasn't long before the bureaucracy of the new NHS was running up against the old ways of Skipton. At first glance, the designation in autumn 1949 of Skipton as a general hospital rather than a cottage hospital might seem relatively harmless. However, the effect was to stop local GPs visiting 
treating and prescribing for their patients in Skipton Hospital. The local doctors were unanimous in their condemnation. In a joint letter, they protested long and hard and achieved the backing of the local community. When this letter elicited no response from the Ministry of Health as a deadline for reversing the decision loomed, they sent an urgent telegram to the Minister of Health, which stated, Anxiety in Skipton increasing, rate possible upgrading, advisable decision, post undesirable. That seemed to do the trick, although the Health Minister chose not to reply directly. Instead, the Leeds Regional Health Authority announced that the Skipton Hospital would continue to operate as a cottage hospital for the time being. This was the cue for a long-running argument over the relative status of Skipton and Keighley's Hospital, which was ultimately resolved with the construction of Airedale Hospital. Both towns argued that their sites should be expanded and become the main centre for hospital care in the area. Rather than opting for one or the other, both hospitals continued. And in 1961, a large south-facing extension at Skipton General was constructed on part of the garden. It was officially opened by the same Princess Royal who had performed the ceremony of the first opening 29 years earlier. However, neither Skipton nor Keithley's hospital was adequate. The official designation of Cottage Hospital had been scrapped nationwide, and after protracting negotiations, a site for a new hospital was finally agreed upon halfway between Skipton and Keithley. Airedale Hospital was opened by Prince Charles on December 11th, 1970. There were three hospitals still open in Skipton. The old isolation hospital at Cordor Gill, which was now a maternity hospital. The old workhouse, which was now Rakeswood Geriatric Hospital. And Skipton General, which carried out outpatient cases and had some beds for recovery. The retention of these three sites con caused considerable envy, if not resentment, in Keighley, whose hospitals had all been shut when Airedale opened. By 1972, the hospital authorities were reviewing the provision and Corder Gill was mooted for closure. Average occupancy of its 20 beds was just seven and it cost £143 per week for each day in hospital compared to just £65 in Airedale. The writing was on the wall. Corder Gill closed in 1973. As budgets tightened, the fate of the two remaining hospitals was under threat. A small casualty department was maintained at Skipton General, but it only operated in office hours and on Saturday mornings. And in 1983, the local health authority proposed its closure and its reasoning was hard to oppose. It was only dealing with 12 patients a day on average and the average cost of £13 per patient was more than twice the national average. Meanwhile, Rakeswood had 100 beds and continued lacking, looking after elderly patients until April 1991, when one of the NHS periodic funding crises saw its closure and the 56 patients were moved out to nursing homes or hospitals elsewhere. Savings were put at £600,000, but there was no consultation 
A week before the announcement, a thousand pounds had been spent on new curtains, all provided by the Skipton Hospital Friends of Voluntary Movement. What was to be the most controversial aspect about the closing of Brakeswood was a commitment from the Health Authority Chairman, Donald Hansen, that every penny raised from the sale of the site would be used to fund improvements at Skipton General Hospital. And he dangled visions of wards for the elderly, day rooms and a new clinic even on Keighley Road. Skipton Hospital friends who had over the years ploughed significant funds into equipment and improvements at Rakeswood launched a brave, if ultimately futile, bid for a change of mind. A key supporter of theirs was Dr Brian Fisher, who told the Craven Herald that he was unconvinced by the Regional Health Authority's promise to create extra beds and day facilities in Skipton from money raised through the sale of Rakeswood. He wrote, Several promises have been made in the past and have never been followed up. This is yet another closure of services on the periphery of the area, and I don't think they will be replaced. I don't believe anything they say. When the property was put up for sale, Craven College was keenly interested. With buildings dotted all over the town, Principal Ian Prescott had hopes of using it as a site for its whole operation and expanding its offering. This plan had popular backing, but the NHS sold the estate for almost £1 million to a property developer who named it, to the mystification of Skiptonians, as Gainsborough Court, which has nothing to do with the history of town whatsoever. And what of Dr Fisher's scepticism? Four years after the promise to use all funds from the sale of Rakeswood to improve Skipton General the Health Authority broke its word, stating it had no say over the dispersal funds and these had been ploughed into the general NHS budget. A later scheme for developing the Skipton General Hospital and housing both doctors' surgeries on the site as a health clinic gained considerable traction in the first decade of the 21st century, but they were dropped in one of the periodic reorganisation of NHS provision. Skipton General Hospital is still there, for now. Next time on the History of Skipton podcast, we'll be switching focus with a segment which I'm going to call Skipton at Play, covering leisure and recreation down the years. Thank you very much for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying this series and I hope you'll be tuning in next time as well. Redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.